Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's my first time speaking at Women's Bible Study, so I'm really happy to be here with everyone tonight and everyone online as well. So we're looking at chapter 8 tonight, chapter 8, 31 through chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 8 is a pivotal chapter in that the disciples finally begin to see the true identity of Jesus. In this chapter, Jesus says two things, and I'm going to quote Tim Keller here and throughout my talk um, from his book, Jesus the King. Keller says, Jesus says two things, I'm a king, but a king going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross too. So let's dig into this. If you remember from last week, Jesus has just asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Peter is using a word that when translated means anointed one. Kings at that time were traditionally anointed in oil at their coronation. The word Peter uses here, Christos, had come to mean the anointed one, the Messiah, the king of kings, the king who will make everything right. Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. And Jesus accepts the title, but then he turns everything on its head, basically telling them, yes, I am the king, but I am not the king you are expecting. Jesus began to teach the disciples, and in verse 31 he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can you just imagine the disciples sitting there, listening to Jesus, listening as he has just accepted the title of the Christ, the Messiah? How excited they must have been. And then he goes on to tell them, but I'm going to suffer and die. Wait, what? This is the first time that the Messiah had been connected to suffering. And this notion that the Messiah would suffer made no sense at all to the disciples. In their minds, the Messiah was supposed to destroy the tyranny of Rome and restore the kingdom of Israel. The Messiah represented strength, triumph, power, and victory. How in the world could this go with suffering and death? The Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right in the world. How could Jesus defeat evil by suffering and dying? Peter thought that God's kingdom would come in power, majesty, and glory. But Jesus was saying that it would come through rejection, humiliation, and shame. This is probably what put Peter over the top and is why Peter immediately begins to rebuke him. The word rebuke here is used in other places in the New Testament, and it refers to what Jesus does to demons. Peter is therefore condemning Jesus in the strongest possible language. Peter recoils at this thought of a suffering Messiah. He thinks what Jesus has said is in error. But let's think about this. In Peter's world, from the time he was a child, he had been told that when the Messiah came, He would defeat evil and injustice by ascending the throne. As James Edwards states in his commentary on Mark, For Peter, 
The indication that the Son of Man will die is unthinkable. For Jesus, it is inevitable. One other important detail here. Notice that Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed. Not maybe suffer or might die, but must suffer and must die. As Tim Keller puts it, what Jesus said was not just, I've come to die, but I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. The world can't be renewed, and nor can your life unless I die. Jesus is saying, I must suffer, I must go to the cross. I must pay the penalty for your sin. I must take your punishment. The only way God can pardon us and not judge us is to go to the cross and pay the penalty for us. By submitting to death, Jesus broke its hold on him and on us. Why in the world would he do this? Because, friends, he loves us. And if we are resting in the security of Jesus' love for us, this should enable us to need less and to love others more. Jesus continues in verses in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, Jesus tells those around him, you've got to do the same thing. If you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What does it really mean to take up our cross? Many people interpret cross as a burden they must carry in their lives. This is not what Jesus meant. Everyone in that day and time knew what the cross was. In our world, the cross is jewelry or perhaps decoration on our walls. It is used in religious ceremonies or traditions. But in that day, the cross meant one thing and one thing only. Death by the most painful and humiliating means humans could develop. And to top it all off, convicted criminals were forced to carry their own crosses to the place of crucifixion. Bearing a cross meant carrying their own execution device while facing ridicule along the way to their death. Do you see what Jesus is telling us? If you want to follow me, then you have to walk down death row too. This is a heavy call, but friends, it is a walk to life. Taking up our cross to follow Christ simply means commitment to the point of giving up our hopes, dreams, possessions, even our very life, if need be. Consider these questions. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means alienation with your family? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means the loss of your reputation? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your life? These are very real questions in some places of the world. I went to the Open Doors website to pull a few stories for you. Open Doors is an organization that tracks the 50 countries where it is most difficult and dangerous to follow Jesus. Consider these examples. In India, just this past fall, a frenzied mob of 2,000 were determined to punish 
and intimidate almost 80 Christian converts in their village. Many believers were severely beaten. In Iran, if caught, Christians are arrested for participating in a house church. In Sudan, for the past 30 years, if a person were to leave Islam, they would be sentenced to death. This law was just abolished in September of last year. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Christians around the world have been denied food and other resources. These situations are largely unthinkable to us in our country, where we have freedom of religion. So maybe what's a more relevant question for us? Maybe it is, if you are faced with a choice, Jesus or the comforts of this life, which will you choose? Are we willing to lose our identity for his sake? Are we willing to practice this in our hearts and our minds every day? What does it mean to lose our life for the sake of the gospel in order to save it? The word for life here is the Greek word psyche, which means your identity. Jesus is saying, don't build your identity on gaining things in this world. Our culture today, however, tells us that if we acquire or achieve certain things, we will then have value. If I can only get this job, if I can only get into this school, if I can only make more money, then I will be somebody. But Jesus is saying this will never work. Jesus is saying that we must lose our old self, our old identity, and base ourselves rather on him and on the gospel. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality of my own. In other words, as Keller puts it, Your real self will not come out as long as you are looking for it. It will only emerge when you are looking for him. So my next question is, who are we looking at? Are we looking at Jesus or are we looking at ourselves? Are we in selfie mode? We are living in a culture that just loves selfies, right? And I know selfies aren't necessarily a bad thing, but it does beg the question, are we too busy looking at ourselves Or are we looking at what Jesus did for us on the cross? Francis Chan, an American pastor and author, says, The secret to joy in Christ is to get out of selfie mode and stare at someone more beautiful than you. When we can see what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can submit to him out of love and trust. We can say, whatever you ask, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. That's so hard, though, isn't it? I know I have a hard time saying this and submitting to what he asks of me. 
This is so hard and counterintuitive because everything today is so focused on self. But sometimes we must take our eyes off of ourselves and look at others and follow Jesus into the hard things in life. We have to take the hard road. Missionary David Livingstone was once asked, Have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to know how to send other men to join you. And he replied, If you have men who will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men strong and courageous enough who will come even if there is no road at all. I know I like to look for the good road, the road that tells me exactly where to go and what to do. But sometimes it is the hard road we must take. We have to get messy, or as I sometimes like to say, we have to get into the mud. This might mean standing up for your faith. It may mean forgiving someone that is very difficult to forgive. It may mean helping the oppressed or serving the poor. Let's get more specific. It may mean teaching immigrants in Northeast Philly how to speak English at Grow. It may mean teaching homeless men about Jesus through whosoever gospel mission. It may mean helping trafficking victims. It may mean serving in New Life's food pantry. It may mean tutoring an underprivileged group of kids. Or it may mean selflessly caring for a family in our church who needs help right now. May I encourage you, sisters, don't look for the bridge to walk cleanly over the mud, but rather step into the mud and get messy. Sometimes we step into the mud willingly. Sometimes we need a nudge or a push or someone reaching out saying, take my hand and let's do this together. Let me share an example of my family being nudged into the mud. When we first started attending New Life, I remember one November sitting down, opening the bulletin, and there was a picture of a child that needed adopting. Something moved in my heart, but I didn't act on anything at this point. We continued coming to church, and do you remember when at the end of every service we used to be able to talk to each other and say hi, and we didn't have the mask on and everything? (laughs) We could turn and greet each other. Well, one Sunday, we sat by a couple we didn't know, and we talked to them afterwards. I said, well, what do you do? Oh, I work for Bethany Adoptive Services. Same thing another Sunday. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I work for a foster agency, and actually I started this agency years ago. Another week, another person that worked for Bethany. I asked my husband, how do we keep sitting by people who are working in foster care or adoption? We were starting to see the message. Can you see how I was being nudged to get into the mud? I started researching adoption and foster care. And I will admit, I maybe had a toe in the mud at this point. I really wanted to walk away from the mud and look for a different path. But fast forward to August of 2017, my husband David and I became certified foster parents and we received our first placement in September. Jenny was 20 months old when she came into our lives. She entered into foster care because of neglect and malnourishment. She weighed 16 pounds at 20 months, which is the normal weight of a six-month-old. Jenny would not make eye contact with us, would not smile for us, and when I tried to rock her for the first time, she pushed away from me as if the human touch was too much for her. Within the first week, I noticed that she would just wake up from naps or from her nightly sleep, and she would just sit in her crib and not cry out. 
I guess no one had come to take care of her before when she cried, so she had just stopped crying. She had just learned to walk at 18 months and knew how to say maybe five words. We had our work cut out for us. Over time, Jenny learned to run, to jump, to skip, to jump on the trampoline, to kick a soccer ball. She learned some sign language until she could speak more words. We did physical therapy, speech therapy, and nutritional therapy with her. She learned to eat what we were eating. Spinach actually became one of her favorite foods. She learned to laugh. She learned to smile. She learned to play with my kids and the neighborhood kids. In other words, she got to be a kid. She was able to escape the brokenness that was previously around her and embrace the love that we tried to show her. In May of 2019, Jenny went back home to live with her biological mom after almost two years of being in our house. And I will say that her mom worked super hard for this. While we were definitely sad, we were happy for Jenny's mom and the outcome that she worked so hard for. What I've learned is that it's been even harder for me to step into her mom's life as well. Stepping into her messy was and is a whole different level. And I still don't know the answers of how much I should step in, if even at all. We've had them over for dinner. We continue to text each other. And we've dropped by a few times to visit. But I'm often burdened with the question, should we be doing more? This is when I have to pray and ask for wisdom. Was foster care always easy? No, it wasn't easy at all. Was it messy? You bet it was. Did I love Jenny perfectly? Of course not. There were days when I was really frustrated with her, days when I was annoyed, days when I yelled. Honestly, there were days when selfie mode became more important than caring for her. My thoughts would range for, I have no time to myself. All I do is care for this child. She's not even trying to use her words. Why am I doing this? There were days when I couldn't get out of selfie mode and I lost sight of the cross. There were days when I became so frustrated at the lack of control I had over the entire situation. I would think, but Lord, this is how it's supposed to end. I've got it all planned out. Or, well, Lord, you're just gonna, you're just going to do what you want to do anyway, so whatever, I'm not talking to you right now. Overall, I just kept trying to show Jenny love. I tried to teach her about Jesus and how much he loves her. And maybe, ladies, this is the point. Maybe we just keep trying. We keep trying to love others because of how much Jesus loves us. We keep trying to stare at the cross. We keep trying to die to self because we are so focused on Jesus and on loving others. It doesn't have to be perfect. We can't be Jesus. We can't love perfectly. But let us at least try to be like him, to love others like he does, to care for others like he does. How is Jesus calling you to lose your life for the sake of others? Tim Keller says, When the way of Jesus is more important than your own existence, you will secure your eternal being. But when your own existence is more important than Jesus, you will lose both Jesus and your existence. You can't have both, both Christ and your own life. Rather, as we are called to be disciples, we have an either-or choice. 
The claim of Jesus is a total and exclusive one as the whole person stands under Christ's claim. It's an absolute surrender. I'm reminded of the hymn, I Surrender All. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken, take me Jesus, take me now. All to Jesus I surrender, make me Savior, holy thine. Let me feel thy Holy Spirit, truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender, Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power, let thy blessing fall on me. All to Jesus I surrender, now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation, glory, glory to his name. And speaking of glory, as we come to this last section, we read that Jesus was transfigured. Let's pick back up in chapter 9, verse 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. In this moment, Jesus becomes dazzling. He's on a mountain, and a voice comes out of a cloud. Even Moses and Elijah make an appearance. Keller says that in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah point to the glory of God, while Jesus is the glory of God in human form. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Peter, James, and John are surrounded and embraced by the brilliance of God on this mountaintop. They hear God the Father speaking of his love for his Son, and then suddenly the cloud goes away, and they are left standing there in wonder. The disciples have just experienced worship. Worship is a preview of what our hearts are longing for, a day when all the sad things will become untrue, when everything will be made new when we are able to stand in the presence of that dazzling brilliance. Can we see clearly, sisters, what God has done for us? Can we see Jesus dragging that cross to his death? Can we see him giving up his identity so that we may have one? It is one thing to know that God loves us, that he cares for us, but it's another thing to sense it, to experience it. May we take up our cross, may we follow him, May we lose our life for the sake of the gospel. May we do this, sisters, every day until our faith becomes sight and we are standing in his dazzling glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you open our eyes 
so that we can see what you have done for us on the cross. Would you open our hearts, Lord, to experience the love you have for us? And would you encourage our hearts to love others more? Would you show us ways that we can care for those around us? Help us to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. Show each one of us what it means to follow you, Lord. Help us to know how much you love us and help us to not lose sight of the radiant glory that awaits. In Jesus' name, amen.